Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Psychics Podcast. I'm Dr. Jun Chun here with my co-host, Dr. Logan Noon, and we are both resident psychiatrists. Resident psychiatrists, physicians. That's right. That's right. Um, today we're going to be talking about MAT. Logan, what does MAT stand for? Medication-assisted, I guess, treatment. I said therapy before we were recording. Um, you know, I've worked in this space for a little bit. I worked at an addiction center before medical school, um, but I'm really excited to revisit this topic this evening. Um, if you're just tuning in for the first time, I actually encourage you to listen to one of our previous episodes where Dr. Chun did a fantastic job kind of outlining the history of the opioid epidemic. And this is kind of part two. Part two, yeah, because um, that's a conversation that needs an extensive amount of discussion right. given the scope of how, how really serious um, the opioid epidemic has gotten mm. in terms of um, the mountain deaths. Uh, we actually surpassed 100,000 deaths per year from drug overdoses, and a majority of those are due to opioids, mostly fentanyl. Um, right. But I, I asked, I posed that question to you, MAT, what does that stand for? Because um, I actually was trying to trick you into something. Mm. Yeah. So Did I get know, tricked? Yeah, you did. I gotcha. Nice. So MAT, Medication for Addiction Treatment. You're apparently not supposed to say medication-assisted treatment anymore. Did you hear about that? I don't know, man. I can't keep up with these PC word changes in the world of medicine. It's 2023. It's the cultural zeitgeist, right? We're we're always looking to modify our language, um, trying not to offend people. And I guess this is just uh, par for the course. Um, Right. Yeah, so it's it's bizarre. Um, But I, I, I I guess it is what it is. And let's just pause on that and, and talk about that real quick. Um, so I know a lot of people who live with alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder. And it's kind of funny to me that we are arguing, and it's not me and you aren't arguing, but it seems like the world of medicine and the culture about semantics, how people want to be perceived. And yes, yeah, certainly I understand some people get very offended by the word alcoholic. But guess what? Some people also identify as an alcoholic. Maybe they're uh, communities of, uh, or members, excuse me, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's how that term, that use of the word is meaningful to them and maybe is allowing them to motivate themselves to take care of themselves. And I remember I've I've literally talked to patients and said alcohol use disorder. And they're like, what the hell is that? They're like, do I have that? (laughs) It's like, what are you talking about, doctor? So I think it's really funny. Like we argue all these things it does it really have that much meaningful impact on the patient like i don't know that's the question right here i'm going to show you this little chart that was passed out um and this is where the term medication assisted treatment is supposed to be avoided and instead we're supposed to use medication for addiction treatment um so take a look at some of the words especially pay attention to that top line right there it's exactly right. um what you said and i noticed that you paused before you said alcoholic or addict because apparently those are also terms you're supposed to avoid. And I find myself asking, like, where, who's coming up with these things? Is, this, is there some kind of data right. that says if we use the word addict, if we use the word alcoholic, this leads to adverse outcomes for patients? Or is this par for course of 2023, the culture that we have um, of sensitivity, of be- being careful, or sometimes to a fault, being overly careful with our words um, that, you know, some group of academics are sitting in their ivory towers and coming up with things that are not appropriate. Um, but in reality, like if you just imagine an AA meeting, right, that's literally how you introduce yourself. 
You stand right. up, you say, "Hey, I'm June, and I'm an alcoholic." So I really wonder if um, real patients, people that are actually suffering with um, substance use disorders, have actually been polled and had had their input in coming up with a list like this, um, these terms that right. we can't use anymore. Because this kind of reminds me of like, you know, we talked about this a few weeks ago off off air. Um, you know, the thing about Latinx, the term Latinx. Oh, God. Um, so yeah, that's a term, right? For those of you, for those of you who are a term created with by it. white people. Let's be real. Exactly. And when what was my the wife is of of uh, Mexican descent, right? And, and she laughs so hard when she ever hears the term Latinx. Exactly. She's like, I'm a Latina. That's in my language. It's not even. It's more to me than just culture. That's how the language works. All of a sudden, if I'm, uh, you know, like a Latinx, people are gonna be like, your Spanish is also terrible too. Exactly. So a term that was invented because the gender gender language was deemed um, kind of, hmm, what should I say, deemed a little bit provocative to a certain subject of people right. um, in our society, and thus the term Latinx. But when you actually ask people of actual Latin descent, a majority of them hate it, and they think oh. it's silly. And that's what I, you know, you showed me that chart. Um and, you know, if you could maybe read aloud some of the things from that chart, but I think we'll also post it. Yeah, I'll know, put it on the screen. The show yeah, notes they'll be able to read too, along with like, us. You know, do we have to always change the language radically if one person offended? Is it like, how do we change these things? Is it even the majority? Like, sure, maybe are these terms medication assisted treatment uh, offensive to 5% of the, the people who choose to engage with Suboxone or methadone or other treatment. Um, I was also laughing at there. It said, um, opioid replacement therapy versus, oh no, it's an opioid agonist therapy. It's like, what? That's, that's Imagine just, telling a patient that they'll like, just, they'll just look at you like, what, what are you talking about? Wait, so is this a different medicine? No, it's the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> but gosh, I mean, it's, I just get frustrated because I feel like we have such greater problems in the world of medicine and healthcare than arguing necessarily always the terms and language that's least offensive. I think it's important. I'm not saying it's not important at all, but I think sometimes we get lost in the details and get away from the big picture. Right, because at the end of the day, we have to remember that there are real people suffering with opioid use disorder, alcohol use disorder, um, and so many other substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Suboxone, Methadone. We're going to throw in Naltrexone as well, because those are the three mm -hmm. that are uh, most commonly prescribed for opioid use disorder mm -hmm. and controlling the cravings. And um, in an effort to help these individuals to regain some semblance of normalcy back. Right. And that's exactly going to be the topic of conversation today. Um so, Logan, let me just ask you, I think this would be a great way to start off the conversation. How do you feel about um, patients being on Suboxone, Methadone, Naltrexone? Because there's really two camps, right? Um, in the world of medicine, the culture of medicine teaches us that Suboxone, you know, medication for addiction treatment is the way to go. It's the only way to go sometimes. But at the same time, there's people that criticize these policies. Um, and I never really fully understood what was the reasoning behind their, um, their kind of hesitancy to support medication for addiction treatment until I did some research for this episode of the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think that's, that would be a great place to start off. How do you feel about just Suboxone, Methadone, and these medications for substance use disorders in general? Right. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, of course, mixed motions. You know, the world we live in is not purely black and white. And I get the argument that, um, I mean, because these 
medications and we can get into the pharmacology, the nitty gritty, but like in many ways it is sort of replacing one opiate for a different version of an opiate, one that I would argue is a much safer opiate. And, you know, I, I understand the critics saying, oh, well, isn't that just like still feeding into the addiction? I think that's a very superficial way of understanding things because there are true physiology changes when your body it becomes so exposed to opiates over time that you can literally have changes with uh, the endogenous opioid production in your body. What I mean by that is opioids that are naturally produced in your own body. You can literally become more sensitive to pain. And the numbers don't lie. People who are on um, these uh, Suboxone, um, Methadone, these other medication-assisted treatment, I, for, I don't know if that's the right semantics. I don't even care. Yeah. But it leads to less people overdosing. And I feel very passionate about this because, you know, my friend, Chuck Derwin, I knew this guy from high school. If any one of my friends could ever have made it as a stand-up comedian, I would have put money on this guy. I lost touch with him after high school and I never saw him alive. And I went to his funeral years after high school. Um, I don't know exactly the details of his death, but look, I don't know. I can maybe read between the lines and think that it could have been an overdose. It's scary. It's extremely sad. Um, and that's why it makes me really think and ponder, you know, like I wonder if that person could have been exposed to this sort of therapy if they could have been more successful. Right. So the first step is the patient, you know, whoever's dealing with an opioid use disorder has to want to have the desire um, to get on one of these substances, whether it be Suboxone, Naltrexone, or Methadone. Um, and you hit the nail on the head. One of the biggest, biggest criticism against medication-assisted therapy is that you're essentially replacing one drug for another, right? You're still dependent on something. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I also found was you know, and, you know, just picking, piggybacking off of that, um, there's a bigger moral criticism that certain individuals seem to have that essentially we are giving up on the process of recovery for, for certain individuals, mm -hmm. right? Because in, in the, in the viewpoints of the critics, recovery is being completely free of substance use, um, whether it be naltrexone, suboxone, or the actual, um, like heroin or whatever it may be. Right. And, the philosophy behind it, um, it kind of, you know, it's like when, when you have it, when you have an individual suffering from an opiate use disorder, this individual is somebody who's been habituated in a sense um, to turn to this drug whenever there's a stressor in their life, whenever there's a moment to celebrate. So for essentially for all life events, they're turning to this drug. And mm -hmm. are we, you know, for, for these people, th these critics, um, true recovery means that we're getting this individual to a point where um, no matter what the trigger is, they don't have the desire to use any kind of substance. So for them, it's, uh, you know, there's there seems to be a moral comp complication or um, or moral discrepancy in the fact that we are still providing essentially an, essentially an opioid. Um, and, you know, while I don't necessarily 100% agree with that point of view, um, I can kind of understand where they're coming from because I never knew this, but um, methadone, actually, did you know that when you're taking methadone in certain states that you can be arrested for driving under the influence? Hmm. 
because it still has sedative properties. It's still right. a medication that's used what, for pain relief. Right. You can be drowsy. You can it can affect your peripheral vision. It can have cognitive slowing. So it's not a it's not a totally benign substance. Um, and you can also get high from methadone, right? Um, so right and and yeah like i mean i think i always talk about kind of it's a dose and potential frequency issue i've even had patients in the hospital that have either been on um, methadone and suboxone it's like why the hell is this 65 year old person on max dose suboxone like this is crazy like that's way too much so i think like these are drugs literally drugs that absolutely can still be misused the same way as their illicit counterparts can and real quick june and i'd like to let you go on you know you mentioned kind of the word recovery and we kind of started the beginning of this episode talking about semantics words and i don't think it's necessarily fair that everyone has the same definition of what recovery means some people's definition of recovery maybe is complete abstinence um and i think i would maybe use the word sober there too right but maybe some people define recovery as being able to become a functional human being again and engage in work and relationships and activities that make them happy it would always made me kind of laugh you know talking about this medication assisted treatment you know, I worked at an addiction center for quite some time, and I would argue that is caffeine, sugar, and cigarettes also medication-assisted treatment? In what sense? I would see oftentimes individuals who, when they would give up on the substance that they perhaps originally enjoyed but turned into be problematic in their life, whether that would be alcohol, opiates, maybe cocaine... There is a true culture of, uh, most especially AA, because I'm most familiar with, but have you ever drove by an AA meeting before or after it starts? I have not. Well, there's a great deal of coffee and cigarettes, and a lot of these individuals, um, they've, they've been very upfront with me, and they've talked about how they engage in, at times, maybe like a sugar kind of addiction pathology. But I'm almost okay with that in some regard, because I would say, well... It's almost less harmful than what you were originally doing. So in my ways, I would define that as a medication-assisted treatment. I see what you're saying, Logan. And that reminds me of, um, are you familiar with the YouTube channel Soft White Underbelly? It sounds like my body, but no, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's it's a huge channel, actually. And um, this guy basically goes out to Skid Row, does interviews with um, some of the the homeless population Mm -hmm. um, and also individuals suffering from a lot of substance use disorders. And one of the things that he said that really stuck out to me is that, um, so this guy, he goes to the gym at 5 a.m. every single day, right? Mm -hmm. And he said a lot of the other people that he sees there, they're they're former addicts. Right. um, And they replace that addiction with a healthy behavior. Um, So, I can kind of see that similar ethos in what you said with the coffee and the cigarettes um, and going to the gym. Of course, arguably going to the gym is much healthier, but in in essence, in both of these methods, you're channeling that that addictive potential, that desire to want to engage in a certain behavior, um, and you're subverting it into another type of behavior. Um, So I see what you're saying there, Logan, and that's, you know, basically one of the biggest arguments, and I, I think it's... It's a pretty legitimate argument um, for the use of suboxone, methadone, naltrexone, because, hey, I understand that you are still replacing one opiate with another, but at the same time, this other substance is, is giving the ability for somebody who's literally lost all control of their lives um, mm-hmm. to live somewhat of a normal life again. They can now return to work. They can now engage in the community. They can now start to work on building their relationships back up again. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
you know, in a sense, it's, I guess it's similar to the coffee and the, and the cigarettes. You're kind of choosing between the lesser of the two evils, right? Would you yeah. rather be taking heroin every day or would you rather be taking Suboxone? I would argue 100% of the time you'd rather be taking Suboxone or Methadone because right. at the very least, um, you can start to live a somewhat of a normal life. You can start to regain some of that control that you've lost. Um, so I think that's the strongest um, argument for the use of MAT, medication-assisted treatment. Right. Right. Um, and I think what's part of this discussion, and I don't want to, if, if we're hump jumping ahead here, pause me, but like, I think what's all always another really interesting philosophical question. It's like, okay, well, do I need to be on Suboxone or Methadone for the rest of my life? Is this a two year maybe, or one year sort of treatment plan? And then I get weaned off. Like, you know, it's, I think that there's very different, interesting schools of thought. But I also think part of this has to be kind of patient-led too. And, and well, it's like, well, what are your goals? How are things going? We don't need to make necessary decision about the rest of your life now, but we can take this in, in steps and in periods day by day. So on the thought of whether somebody should be on methadone or suboxone for, I don't know, like a week, a month, a year, mm -hmm. or indefinitely. So interesting thing. And I also just realized this while I was doing research for this episode. I never knew this before. Um, methadone, when, he, when it first became um, FDA approved for opioid use disorder, um, this was in the early 2000s. Actually, the indication was for it to be used on just a short-term basis. Hmm. And the reasoning behind that was, you're, like we talked about, you're, this is a medication that's going to help somebody regain a little bit of control that they have. So it was supposed to be combined with um, therapy and all these other treatment modalities. And the methadone was just supposed to be there initially to kind of help bridge that gap in the in the beginning stages of, you know, to avoid withdrawal until they can get some therapy under their belt, develop coping mechanisms, and eventually they were supposed to be weaned off of methadone and continue with the therapy and eventually go into total abstinence, mm. right? That was the philosophy when it was first launched. However, it didn't quite work out like that. The current recommendation is that some patients may need to be on it indefinitely um, because once you do get off of it, you do have a very high risk of relapse. Mm. So... Again, I understand where the critics are coming from from that point um, because you know it, the 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 narrative have the narrative has shifted in the past two decades, right? right? It was initially supposed to be short term, but now they're saying you know now that it's widely used, now now the the mantra is no 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 this is something that people should be on indefinitely, and right. you know the philosophical question there is are we are we giving up on that individual and are we confining this individual to live a life of um, you know, dependency towards methadone or suboxone for the rest of their lives. Because right. like we talked about, it is sedating. It does have cognitive effects. Um, but at right. the same time, there's so many other positive benefits. So mm -hmm. I personally tend to fall on the side of, you know, if, you, if you're motivated for treatment and you're, you don't feel the confidence to go totally abstinent, I think methadone or suboxone is a great option. Mm -hmm. um, but there are definitely concerns. And one of the other concerns that I wanted to bring up to you and get your opinion on is... A lot of people out there that don't support the use of methadone or suboxone, one of the biggest um, fears that they bring up is the fear of diversion. That right. one, it could be abused. And two, because suboxone, methadone, these drugs have value on the streets. Right. Um, and they're highly sought after. So mm -hmm. it can potentially be um, diverted and sold off illegally. Right. And, uh, you know, playing off of that, what I think is funny, you know, so right now I haven't done my addiction rotation yet. So I, I don't, I can't say with, you know, great expertise, but a lot of times I read these notes from other addiction facilities who regularly provide um, Suboxone treatment. And what I think is always very 
very interesting to me is they do a urine drug screen on these people, a very extensive one, more more extensive than what we do even in the emergency room, where we do like a seven panel test that we can kind of talk about the shortcomings of that test. But they do this test where they're testing for opiates, very a lot more drugs than we test for in the ER and even for Suboxone in the urine. And what I find extremely interesting is a patient will pop for cocaine, benzos, kind of you name it. And it's, I get like meeting the patient where they're at, you know, not trying to be this paternalistic figure as a medical provider, but it seems like, I wonder how it affects that person's clinical decisions if they choose to still provide Suboxone. Because what I feel like I often see is a patient who is continuously using cocaine, benzodiazepines that they are not prescribed, so they are clearly getting these illicitly bought for, they were not prescribed by a physician, but they still get the same dose of Suboxone. I really disagree with that. I think if you're not using it properly, there has to be some consequences for your actions. What those consequences should be, I, I don't know. Is that a lower dose of Suboxone? Is that maybe if you test positive, you have to then engage in more intensive treatment to continue your Suboxone use? Maybe that's intensive outpatient, maybe that's an inpatient stay. I don't have all the answers, but I see what's going on right now and I'm not thrilled about it. Yeah, so there's definitely some ethical concerns, mm -hmm. right? It's a gray area. And this is also one of those things where not everybody is not everybody in the medical field is 100% in agreement. Um, so that's part of the reason why I wanted to have this discussion with you to kind of hear your thoughts and your perspective on the issue. And Logan, you mentioned that you know, a, a big part of the, the medication assisted treatment is meeting the patient where they're at, right? So I think that's a very important statement that you made, because that's going to lead us into um, this other aspect of how we're dealing with the opioid epidemic. And that is a strategy called harm reduction. Right. Are you familiar with what harm reduction strategies are? Very much so. Very much so. Um, and that's kind of what I was laughing about kind of earlier. It's like, um, I would even propose, like, could you say that cannabis is a medication assisted treatment? Like, to my knowledge, can't overdose on cannabis, but it's very easy to overdose, of course, on heroin is, it, you know, you using the, those cigarettes, using those, um, the caffeine, or maybe even potentially getting addicted to exercise, which like, yes, it's healthier, but that to some point can be harmful too. But you know, I'm, I'm, I am familiar with the harm reduction model. Um, and I think that has to be kind of where we meet our patients because right now the world that our patients in, are living in is surrounded by lethal drugs. And what I think is so crazy to me is when I see that patient who comes into my ER and says, yeah, doc, you know, I'm using heroin again. I show him his urine test result and be like, there ain't no heroin in whatever you just used, dude that's likely fentanyl. And like, I, at least where I'm working, I, I, it's not really cost effective for me to test that urine for fentanyl. I couldn't tell you the exact how much it costs, but I know it costs a lot of money, a lot more than my cheap urine drug screens. Right. But when someone tells me I used heroin and there's no heroin that shows up in that fentanyl, in that, uh, that drug screen, it's very likely that they use fentanyl, which is extremely easy to overdose on. And that makes me so, so, so scared. You know, I kind of take a, I would say pretty radical approach, but maybe analogous to like what uh, Portugal did, even what kind of like what Oregon did, you know, like I feel like you could sort of make the argument if we're providing patients with methadone, Suboxone, 
you know, back in like the 80s or whatever, when heroin was a lot more prevalent and fentanyl wasn't really necessarily a thing, is the next stage of where we're at with addiction treatment is actually providing heroin. Are you saying we just provide heroin to people with opioid use disorders? I think it would maybe have to be a different model, right? Like I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable with patients using heroin necessarily in the outpatient setting, but like, is there ever a realm like uh, that patient who's been using fentanyl in the street and then you bring them into an inpatient unit and in a very safe setting, like maybe not even necessarily heroin, but like using other opiate analogs to slowly wean them off. Maybe like how methadone was originally supposed to be intended. I'm not sure. All I can say is that with certainty is I'm truly scared for my patients who do fall into this world of opiates because I just think it's so easy to die. Right. Um, So I think harm reduction strategies are a little bit more controversial than suboxone, methadone, naltrexone. But wait, Um, wait, wait. Isn't harm reduction treatment suboxone and methadone and that's not naltrexone? But methadone and suboxone, isn't that a harm reduction treatment? Well, that would be considered MAT, right? Medication for addiction treatment. And the difference is that harm reduction strategies are essentially accepting that the patient is not ready to discontinue their opioid use. Whereas if somebody is getting on methadone, suboxone, presumably their intention is to stop their use. So that's the key difference. Um, And and that's why I love the phrase that you use. You meet a patient where they're at because that's the whole philosophy behind um, harm reduction strategies because you recognize that people are not ready to give up their opioid use or whatever substance it may be that they're using. And you kind of recognize that, hey, maybe this person is shooting up heroin that can put them at risk for skin abscesses, um, endocarditis, right? HIV. um, And like you said, with the fentanyl, right? A lot of people are unknowingly consuming fentanyl because it's in so many of those street Mm -hmm. drugs that are prevalent today. So things like little testing strips to test for the possibility that their drug is contaminated with fentanyl. Yeah, and also needle exchange programs. Those are, yeah, that's a huge uh, component of harm reduction strategies. And- the biggest critics against harm reduction strategies suggest that this is a way of just enabling drug use. Mm. Um, so before we get into the, the nitty and gritty of that, let me just ask you, what is your perception of if you surveyed all medical professionals, would you say that majority of people would support something like um, needle exchange programs? Do you think they'll, they're split evenly or do you think a majority are against if you just had to take a guess from being in the medical environment for X amount of years? Interesting question. You know, of course, like I have to preface everything I'm saying because I'm biased. You know, I opinion. feel like yeah. I work in the world of psychiatry. So I think my opinions are oftentimes radically different than a lot of my colleagues. So I think a lot of, a lot of my colleagues when I'm referring to in other areas of medicine would actually feel much, 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 much more uncomfortable with these sort of programs that you're referring to. Whereas me, I feel like, and you, and a lot of our psychiatry colleagues, we're the people who are willing to sit alongside these people who live with addiction issues, um, substance use issues, however you want to call it. Versus I feel like a lot of times what I've seen in medicine is these are the patients that other of our healthcare colleagues get easily annoyed with, that don't want to deal with, that just want to say, in a sense, F that. Yeah. And it drives me nuts. And I feel like, you know, people who live with substance use treatment don't get always treated adequately and fairly. Right. 
I think the so, biggest... So I didn't answer your question, I guess. I would say most of my colleagues don't feel comfortable with needle exchange programs. And I would say I'm in the minority that I do. Ah, interesting because... That's, sorry, I didn't because, answer it fully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting because I, I would have thought that most people would support things like needle exchange programs. I guess so then they don't have to treat necessarily HIV and endocarditis and all these things. Right. Maybe what I'm referring to more is providing Suboxone, providing methadone, especially in the setting of where like you could see their UDS over the past month and you're like, dude, you're still using cocaine every week or right. like meth. Like what's going on here? Right. So I think there has to be a recognition and admission that many patients are not ready to give up um, whatever mm -hmm. substance that they're using. So the question becomes, um, as the critics ask and pose all the time, is this just a way of enabling somebody's drug use? Right. Because, look, you look at every single interview that's done on Skid Row, right? What, what, what's the most common thing that you hear? You're like, they, they, they talk about the fact that everybody's here um, and they don't want to get off the substances. They're here because they want to use drugs. It's readily available um, and they're able to get free needles. They are able to get free food and all their basic needs are met for them because of the community support that's provided in the name of, um, in the name of harm reduction strategy, right? Mm. So essentially for many people, it is, it is a fact that um, this environment does become just a way of continuing their drug use, but in a more comfortable manner um, where they don't have to worry about things like food um, or emergency services because there's so much support around them. Um, so that really got me thinking. And if you kind of extrapolate that out to like the most extreme versions. Um, so for example, there's, I don't know if you noticed, if you realized, but, um, I, and I didn't, I, I only recently found this out. Um, right now in New York City, there's there's a there's what we call a supervised injection site. Right. Um, and I know like Ontario, Canada, um, Vancouver have very right, similar things. Right. So the one in New York is relatively new and it's not without controversy. Um, but interestingly enough, there was recently one in San Francisco in the Tenderloin District. It mm -hmm. actually opened in January of 2022 and closed down in December 2022. Interesting. Tell me more. So the idea behind that program was that they're going to, you know, people are using drugs, right? Harm reduction right. strategy. We're going to create a safe environment so that we can intervene for overdoses. And a major component of that program was supposed to be diverting patients that came in into mental health services. So getting, giving them the help that they wanted. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, less than 1% of people that came through those doors got hooked up with mental health services. Interesting. Which to me, it clearly screams they're not interested in treatment. Um so that brings me back to the question, are these strategies such simply encouraging and enabling drug use? Um, and if we're, if we're asking those kind of questions, like what do we say about, um, like you said, like should we be providing heroin to people, right? There's a, people commit crimes, um, they commit robberies because they, they want to avoid withdrawal, which right. arguably puts them into really dangerous situations. Mm -hmm. So if the whole idea of philosophy behind harm reduction strategies is to keep that individual from having adverse consequences secondary as a complication to their substance um, dependence, why not, you know, what, 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 why draw the line at needle exchange programs? Why not just provide them housing? Because if they're using drugs that they're out in the elements, they're susceptible to getting, um, you know, pneumonia, colds, whatever it may be. Um, why not provide them with heroin or any other substances that they're using? Because you can make an argument that they're putting themselves in harm's way to obtain these substances, hmm. right? So I think that's where the philosophy behind harm reduction strategies get a little bit murky. <laughs> I think there's a line that's drawn. Um, 
so for example, right, needle exchange programs and providing somebody with um, heroin, right? They're they're on different ends of the spectrum, arguably, right? Mm-hmm. So while some people may be comfortable with needle exchange programs, that person might ne- not necessarily be comfortable with um, with providing individuals with supplying individuals with substances. Um, so I think for many of us, there is a line somewhere. And the question is, where does that line lie for you? I think for right. everybody it's different. And I don't think this is a conversation or a thought that many individuals have had on a very in-depth level. I mean, I certainly haven't before I started doing research for this podcast. I didn't even know they, they had supervised injection sites. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't yeah. know. I, I and, didn't know about the part thing of in San me, Francisco. Part of me almost like, it's like, you know, that, that scenario you described, and I know that's how you don't truly feel. That's why I asked, like, do you agree with that? But like, should we be providing these people, people uh, housing and just, you yeah, know, I don't here, agree with that. here's your baggie for the day. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like that's completely I'm one side it. of the spectrum. Right. And, um, and I feel like the other side of the spectrum is like, in a sense, like pure Darwinism. Like if a person is susceptible to HIV and endocarditis, like were they forced to inject that stuff in their arm? sadly actually maybe the answer is sometimes yes like i mean there is a world of abuse and and human trafficking that we live in of course but a lot of times there's you know i don't have the numbers but they choose to do that and is like are you going to take a purely darwinian approach and just like you know let them the finest will survive and the the weak won't I certainly don't agree with that, but I don't agree with the complete opposite end of the spectrum too, either like providing them house and give them a bag of heroin every day. It's like, so I agree with you. It's like, where do we find that line in the middle? And I think that's, what's most important here. Right. And, and maybe, and why we kind of started this discussion. I actually have a few more questions that I want to ask you, but like, these are the kind of questions that I want to be asking and talking about when, when me and you serve hopefully on, you know, advocacy committees you know, maybe even um, try to influence politicians in some regard to make smart decisions. I don't think that we need to be arguing necessarily about that chart, about what we're calling all these things, right? Alcohol use disorder versus all these things. So I won't it say- It seems th- silly compared to some of the other real issues impacting right. Thank everyday you. people. So here's, here's a very profound, I think, kind of philosophical question. I'd be very interested to get your thoughts. So I have an attending who you work with as well, who has practiced in another state, I believe it's Kentucky, that in, and we're in New Jersey, remember listeners, that in the state of Kentucky, there are certain legal provisions where psychiatrists, or well, we're psych residents, remember, soon to be psychiatrists, can legally force somebody into substance abuse treatment. Here in New Jersey, to my knowledge, and I could be wrong, at least in a psychiatric sense, me and you can never force somebody into substance use treatment. I think that there's other provisions if you hit like X amount of DUIs that the legal system can force you into substance use treatment. But me, in a medical sense, I cannot. In other states, though, that is different where a medical person can force them into treatment. What do you think about forcing a patient who lives with, let's call it opioid use disorder, and forcing them into an inpatient rehab? Perhaps it's not a popular answer, but I always tend to err on the side of patient autonomy. Mm. I believe that, I mean, we live in a free country, right? If you want to abuse alcohol um, to the point that your liver rots away, you get liver cirrhosis and you end up passing away. Um, as long as you understand that that is what's going to happen if you continue to drink incredible amounts of vodka every single day, I think you do have the right to pursue that kind of lifestyle Mm -hmm. um, as long as you're not harming anybody else, right? 
Um, so, but what, but what if that person committed a crime with their heroin use? Well, then, or fentanyl use, even. I see what you're saying. Crashed because, a car because then they're gonna be locked away. And as we know, a majority, a, a lot of people in our um, criminal justice system are suffering from mental health issues. And mm-hmm. arguably, that is, you know, the prison system is not the right setting for them, and they would more benefit from psychiatric treatment. So I see the I see the moral dilemma that you're getting at, and that's what makes this conversation right. so complicated um and i think you know overall this ties into the issue of harm reduction strategies right because at the end of the day like i think we just need to take a step back and recognize that things like needle exchange programs um they've been around for a while so if these programs truly do help um society why is it that we're seeing records amounts of opioid use disorders, mm-hmm. records amount, record amounts of deaths from opioid overdoses? So when you strictly look at, and I know it's a more complicated issue than that. There's obviously multiple co-founding factors that's gonna um, that's gonna influence the final data that we get. But if you if you just look at you know what's happening in our major cities um the amount of needles that are being found um, on the streets like it's just it's skyrocketing and and we yeah. know the number of people abusing opioids are increasing every 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 single year um i don't know if you saw there like a month ago there was a very viral post on reddit about um a sanitation worker i believe in the city of portland where he's showing the amount of needles that he collected from the streets and disposal centers wow. have you seen that video i have not okay i'm gonna show it to you real quick this is a 20 second clip it shouldn't take too long all right so give me one second so while you're pulling that up i want to share some of my thoughts you know so i actually worked at an addiction center uh prior to medical school in connecticut mountainside great experience there if you need addiction services and you're in the Connecticut area, I would check out Mountainside. I was, I'm proud to say that I was previously an employee there and I think highly of this place. That being said, I, um, nothing against the institution, um, the company, but there was individuals there who were forced to be there by law. I don't know the exact details of why they were forced to be there, but they were forced to engage with a month long substance use treatment. I don't have numbers in front of me. Remember this is anecdotal and this is also my opinion, but I would feel that a lot of times those individuals were kind of just going through the motions. You could tell they didn't want to be there. They were forced to be there. Look, maybe sometimes that yields a good outcome, but I don't know. You could kind of read between the lines and get this sense that as soon as they walked out that door, they were going to go right back to their alcohol or whatever it was. It's that old saying, you can't be trying as a physician. You can't try harder than the patient. There right. has to be some sort of self-motivation, um, internal, internally derived desire uh, to achieve that outcome of sobriety, if that's the goal. Well, and I actually really push, and I agree with you, that I feel like of all the principles of medicine, autonomy is, like, in my opinion, one of the most powerful, important things. Because in a sense, if someone else is forcing you to do something, immediately gut reaction is like, well, I don't like this feeling. I'm being forced. I feel like I'm someone else is controlling me. Like, I don't want to do that thing that someone else is forcing me to. Like, that's my at least opinion. And so I really get frustrated with like forced substance use treatment. And and I get that sometimes it can yield a good outcome. I, I acknowledge that. And maybe it is appropriate in some settings. I don't like to take this all or nothing approach, but I have seen it not work for sure. Right. And I will acknowledge there are logical inconsistencies in my stance because certainly if a patient comes into the ED saying that they're suicidal, they try to slit their wrist, 
right? We're going to, we're committing that patient. We're going to send them to the inpatient facility and arguably with opioids, alcohol, whatever it may be, if you're abusing it to the extent where, um, it becomes a real problem, we know with continued use, eventually you're going to die. It's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, so although it may not be an immediate death as in, as in, um, you know, when we typically think of suicides, it is leading to the same outcome. So in that sense, yeah, there is a logical, um, inconsistency on my part, uh, but at the same time, that's what makes psychiatry, many aspects of psychiatry so tricky, right? Because you're right. always trying to balance um, your role as a provider, your role to keep the patient's well-being first and foremost with um, trying to balance that with respect for patient autonomy and not taking away somebody's civil liberties. So Logan, here, here's that video. Check this out. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> I just wanted to give everybody a little example in Portland, Oregon. Uh how much used rigs we clean up off the streets. Whoa, I'm looking at, whoa, multiple garbage cans just full of needles. Holy crap, that's probably, Each what, 15, 20? Used rigs only. Dude, he's sticking his hand in there. I wouldn't do that. Look. Used rigs. It's been processed. They okay, got thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, dude, I could give you some medical advice bag. right now, man. Use Wear rigs. some gloves. Is oh, man, and there's a whole other bag? Oh, my. What the fuck? Like, I really, when I'm looking at this video, I feel like a visceral reaction, yeah, like literally welcome. kind of God sick to my you. stomach. It's jarring, right? You know, one way to think about it, of course, we have these discussions in an academic intellectual sense. But when you see a video like this, what's actually happening on the streets of our major cities, um, it's unsettling at the very least. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a complicated topic. Um, it's a uniquely human issue. And like with many other uniquely human issues there's pros and cons and i don't think this is a you know certainly this is one one of those issues where there is not a 100 percent complete consensus on mm-hmm. what the what the correct approach should be um and i'm gonna be honest i i have no idea i i honestly don't know if i'm yeah. ready to say like i don't support needle exchange programs because they do um there, there are benefits of it right it does reduce rates of hiv um other transmissible diseases, hepatitis, we can go on and on and on. So there are certain benefits, but we also have to acknowledge the other side of it, that it, you know, that, that the, that the use of opioids in our country is continuing to skyrocket, although that's not strictly tied to um, the failures of harm reduction strategies. It's right. a much more complicated issue, but perhaps it is a part of it. And that's the reason why we're having this conversation, right? To try to parse out some of the nuances, um, so with that said, I just want to go back to the Suboxone methadone, uh, just give my take on those medications. I think absolutely for somebody who wants, who is motivated to get treatment. And for me, that's the key distinction between medication assist treatment and harm reduction, right? These are, for MATs, these are individuals who are motivated, who want to get off the substances that they're uh, dependent on. Um, so I think for those individuals, hey, like who cares if it, who cares if we're replacing one opioid with another? At least this is lesser of the two evils. It's a drug that can help somebody regain control of their life. Um, and eventually, I'd rather help somebody get off of Suboxone. I'd rather have so- somebody get off of methadone rather than help somebody get off of heroin. Because one is a much more complex, much more arguably dangerous um Wait, did you say that correctly you'd rather help somebody get off methadone than heroin right if somebody is coming to me um i want them to be on suboxone so that when they get to a point of saying hey i'm ready to get off of everything completely we can oh. taper that individual off of the suboxone or the methadone right okay. that's a that's a much re- much more reasonable and I easier guess within task. your control right right i see what you're saying yeah okay right because i mean if we 
I mean, if you had to take something every single day, would you rather be injecting yourself with heroin or would you rather be taking Suboxone right. every day and still be able to go to work, take your wife out for, you know, a nice date and right. have some semblance of normalcy in your life? I think, you know, for me, if I was the if I was the patient, um, it would be a pretty clear cut choice for me. I'd I'd much rather be on the Suboxone or the Methadone or the right. Naltrexone um, versus the harm reduction strategies, which are a little bit more of a gray area for me. And I'm going to be honest, I, I, I feel a little bit torn. Um, before I researched for this podcast, I would have, I, I feel like I would have leaned towards the side of supporting um, needle exchange programs and maybe even like a supervised injection center. Mm. Um, but after seeing some of the arguments for the other side, and especially after learning that, you know, that program in San Francisco, less Failed. than 1%, like what? Less than 1%. So that that's clearly screams out to me that the, these programs are not successful in helping individuals right. uh, regain control of their lives. So therein lies the major ethical and moral dilemma for me. So I, I don't know. I'm just going to cop out and say, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I mean, I think Logan. that's fair. Are you doing a part three opiate episode? I think this is it. Maybe in I, the future we can come back if there's any other issues. I'd like to, and maybe I take the responsibility in the reins of part three, because what gets me excited, and I think there's limited data, but it seems like it's kind of the future of the world we're living in. It's like, you know, is there any aspect of interventional psychiatry here? And I feel like people don't even know. They're like, what are you talking about? Interventional psychiatry. And and kind of the traditional ones are the electroconvulsion therapy that everyone's like, ah, no, I'm not doing that. But I wonder, it's like ECT seems to be our backdrop of a lot of other mental health conditions. I'd have to look into the data if ECT has any benefit in um, opioid use disorder and maybe like transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy, stuff like that. But what I really think about is like, is there a world of psychedelics that can actually help with um, addiction. I honestly don't feel well-versed enough to really comment on that today, but I guess you'll have to tune in to future episodes when I do my homework. And I promise you that's something that I'd like to talk about the data for, and maybe the data that doesn't exist for this yet. Part three coming soon, coming soon. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, check out my books that you can see in these cameras here. We all have something, uh, in perfect balance. Dr. Chun is going to start a blog, but he hasn't yet. I'm, I'm forcing I'm you to do yet. it. I'm not um, committing. I don't care. I mean, I, I think if you do decide to do that, I think it would be of great value. So I hope you do. Cheers. Uh, thanks for tuning in.